Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 72. This week we bring you two works of fantasy short fiction, beginning with the 21st century fairy tale The Kite of Stars by Dean Francis Alfar. Dean's stories have been published and anthologized in the Philippines and abroad in Strange Horizons, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, The Apex Book of World SF, The Time Traveler's Almanac and Exotic Gothic. His books include Salamanca, The Kite of Stars and Other Stories, how to Traverse Terra Incognita, East of the Sun and Other Stories, and A Field Guide to the Roads of Manila and Other Stories. He has edited or co-edited various volumes of Filipino speculative fiction, a complete list of which can be found in the show notes for this episode. Dean lives in Manila with his wife and tango partner, the award-winning fictionist Nikki Alfar, and their daughters Sage and Rowan. The story is narrated by Diana Sanchez. Diana is a voiceover talent and actress who has performed professionally for 14 years. While pursuing a voice talent and acting career, Diana also consults in geographical information systems, and her background in IT management does not prevent her from owning multiple old computers, some with Windows 98 still running. That's impressive. An avid fan of science fiction since her grandfather gave her a copy of Heinlein's Tunnel in the Sky when she was nine, she feels greatly privileged to help bring this story to life. And now, The Kite of Stars by Dean Francis Alfar. The night when she thought she would finally be a star, Maria Isabella Dulcielo struggled to calm the trembling of her hands reached over to cut the tether that tied her to the ground, and thought of that morning many years before, when she'd first caught a glimpse of Lorenzo de Vicenzio El Salvadore. Tall, thick-browed, and handsome, his eyes closed, 
oblivious to the cacophony of the accident waiting to occur around him. Maria Isabella had just turned sixteen then, and each set of her padrinos had given her, along with the sequin Brida du Caballo, the dresses of rare tulle, organza, and cera, and the diadema floral do dama, the requisite floral circlet of young womanhood, a purse filled with coins to spend on anything she wanted. And so she'd gone past the Calle du Leones, where sleek cats of various pedigrees sometimes allowed themselves to be purchased, though, if so, only until they tired of their new owners, walked through the Avenida dos Conquistadores, where the statues of the conquerors of Ciudad Mayora lined the entirety of the broad promenade, and made her way to the Encanto Lucamanata, that maze-like series of interconnected streets, each leading to some wonder or marvel for sale, where little musical conch shells from the islets near Palau An could be found, those she liked very much. In the vicinity of the Plaza Imperial, she saw a young man dressed in a coat embroidered with stars walk almost surely to his death. In that instant, Maria Isabella knew two things with the conviction reserved only for the very young. First, that she almost certainly loved this reckless man, and second, that if she simply stepped on a dog's tail, the very dog watching the same scene unfold right next to her, she could avert the man's seemingly senseless death. These were the elements of the accident waiting to happen, an ill-tempered horse hitched to some noble's calesa, an equally ill-tempered calesa driver with a whip, a whistling panadero with a tray of plump pan de sal perched on his head, two puddles of fresh rainwater brought about by a brief downpour earlier that day, a sheet of stained glass en route to its final delivery destination at the house of the most excellent primo orador, a broken bottle of wine, and, of course, the young man who walked with his eyes closed. Without a moment's further thought, Maria Isabella stepped on the tail of the dog that was resting near her. The poor animal yelped in pain, which in turn startled the horse, making it stop temporarily, which in turn angered the calesa driver even more, making him curse the horse, which in turn upset the delicate melody that the panadero was whistling, which in turn made the panadero miss stepping into the two puddles of rainwater, which in turn gave the men delivering the sheet of stained glass belonging to the most excellent primo orador an uninterrupted path, which in turn gave the young man enough room to cross the street without so much as missing a beat or stepping onto the broken wine bottle, which in turn would never give him the infection that had been destined to result in the loss of his right leg and, ultimately, his life. Everyone and everything continued to move on their own inexorable paths, and the dog she had stepped on growled once at her and then twisted around to nurse its sore tail. But Maria Isabella's eyes were on the young man in the star-embroidered coat, whose life she had just saved. She decided she would find out who he was. The first twenty people she asked did not know him. It was the butcher's boy who told her who he was, as she rested near the butcher's shop along the Rotunda do Vendedores. His name is Lorenzo de Vicenzio, the butcher's boy said. I know him because he shops here with his father once every sunnight. My master saves some of the choicest cuts for their family. 
They're rather famous, you know. Maestro Vicenzio, the father, names stars. Stars, Maria Isabella asks. And would you know why he walks with his eyes closed? The sun, I mean. Well, Lorenzo certainly isn't blind, the butcher's boy replied. I think he keeps his eyes closed to preserve his vision for his stargazing at night. He mentioned he had some sort of telescope he uses at night. How can I meet him? she asked, all thoughts of musical conch shells gone from her mind. You! What makes you think he will even see you? Listen, the butcher's boy whispered to her. He only has eyes for the stars. Then I'll make him see me, she whispered back. And as she straightened up, her mind began to make plan upon plan upon plan, rejecting possibilities, making conjectures, assessing what she knew, whom she knew, and how much she dared. It was a lot for anyone to perform in the span of time it took to set her shoulders, look at the butcher's boy, and say, Take me to the best kite maker. The butcher's boy, who at fourteen was easily impressed by young ladies of a certain disposition, immediately doffed his white cap, bowed to Maria Isabella, gestured to the street filled with people outside, and led her to the house of Melchor Antivades, famed throughout Ciudad Mayora and Inverance as the master builder of acolones, cometas, sarangola, and other artefactos voladores. They waited seven hours to see him, for such was his well-deserved fame that orders from all over the realms came directly to him for festivals, celebrations, consecrations, funerals, regatta launches and such, and did not speak to each other. Maria Isabella was thinking hard about the little plan in her head, and the butcher's boy was thinking of how he had just lost his job for the dubious pleasure of a silent young woman's company— he spent most of the time looking surreptitiously at her shod feet and oddly wondering whether she, like the young ladies that figured in his fantasies, painted her toes blue in the manner of the circus artistas. When it was finally their turn, for such was the nature of Melchor Antivades that he made time to speak to anyone and everyone who visited him, being of humble origin himself, Maria Isabella explained what she wanted to the artisan. "'What I need,' she began, "'is a kite large enough to strap me onto. "'Then I must fly high enough to be among the stars themselves, "'so that anyone looking at the stars will see me among them, "'and I must be able to wave at least one hand to that person.' "'What you need,' Melchor Antivares replied with a smile, is a balloon, or someone else to love. She ignored his latter comment and told him that a balloon simply would not do. It would not be able to achieve the height she needed. Didn't he understand that she needed to be among the stars? He cleared his throat and told her that such a kite was impossible, that there was no material immediately available for such an absurd undertaking— that there was, in fact, no design that allowed for a kite that supported the weight of a person, and that it was simply impossible, 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 impossible to design, impossible to find materials. No, no, it was impossible, even for the illustrados. She pressed him then for answers, 
to think through the problem. She challenged him to design such a kite and to tell her just what these impossible materials were. Conceivably, I could dream of such a design. That much I'll grant you. If I concentrate hard enough, I know it will come to me. That much I'll concede. But the materials are another matter. Please, tell me what I need to find, Maria Isabella said. None of it can be bought, and certainly none of it can be found here in Ciudad Mayora. Although wonder can be found here if you know where to look. Tell me. And so he began to tell her. Sometime during the second hour of his recitation of the list of materials, she began to take notes and nudge the butcher's boy to try to remember what she couldn't write fast enough. At dawn the following day, Melkor Antevada stopped speaking, reviewed the list of necessary things compiled by Maria Isabella and the butcher's boy, and said, I think that's all I'd need. As you can see, it is more than any man could hope to accomplish. But I am not a man, she said to him, looking down at the thousands of items on the impossible list in her hands. The butcher's boy, by this time, was asleep, his head cradled in the crook of his thin arms, dreaming of aerialists and their blue toes. Melkor Andivades squinted at her. Is any love worth all this effort, looking for the impossible? Maria Isabella gave the tiniest of smiles. <laughs> what makes you think I'm in love? Melkor Antivares raised an eyebrow at her denial. I'll get everything, she promised the kite maker. But it may take a lifetime to gather everything, the artisan said wearily. A lifetime is all I have, Maria Isabella told him. She then shook the butcher's boy awake. I cannot go alone. You're younger than me, but I will sponsor you as my companion. Will you come with me? Of course, mumbled butcher's boy drowsily. After all, this shouldn't take more time than I have to spare. It may be significantly longer than you think, the artisan said, shaking his head. Then please, Sarah Antivales, dream the design, and I'll have everything you listed when we return. She stood to leave. That very day, Maria Isabella told her parents in both sets for padrinos that she was going off on a long trip. She invoked her right of Verdumondo, when women of at least sixteen years, and men of at least twenty years, could go forth into the wideness of Hinirung, sometimes to seek their fortune, sometimes to run from it. They all gave her their blessings, spoke fondly of how she used to dance and sing as a child, saluted her new right as a woman and full citizen of Ciudad Mayora, accompanied her all the way to the Portun de Transgresiones, with more recalled memories of her youth, and sent her on her way. As for the butcher's boy, he waited until she was well away and then joined her on the well-worn path, the Sendero du Viajero, along with the supplies she had asked him to purchase. I'm ready to go, the butcher's boy grinned at her. He was clad in a warm tunic in the manner of city folk, and around his neck, for luck, 
he wore an ajimat, a wooden charm fashioned in the form of a wheel. What did you tell your kinfolk? Maria Isabel asked him as he helped her mount a sturdy horse. That I would be back in a month or so. It took almost sixty years for Maria Isabella and the butcher's boy to find all the items on Melkor Antivada's impossible list. They began at Puranan and then trekked to Katakios and Virato, where the sanctuary of the first tree stood unmolested by time. They traveled north to the lands of Bontok and Kauraquis, where the Povo Montaha dwelt in seclusion. They sailed eastwards to Paloan and the Islas du Calamian, where the traders from countries across the seas converged in a riot of tongues. They ventured westward to the dark lands of Sikuyor and Yomajig, where the silent ones kept court whenever both sun and moon occupied the same horizon. They visited the fabled cities of the south, Dia al-Tandag, Dia al-Din, and Dia al-Bahau, where fire-shrouded jinn and the Takbarang waged an endless war of attrition. They entered the marbled underworld of the sea lords of Rumblon and braved the lair of the Marinduque, in whose house the dead surrendered their memories of light and laughter. When they ran out of money after the third year of travel, Maria Isabella and the butcher's boy spent time looking for ways to finance their quest. She began knowing only how to ride, dance, sing, play the arpa, the violin, and the flauta, embroider, sew, and write poetry about love. The butcher's boy began knowing how to cut up a cow. By the time they had completed the list, they had more than quintupled the amount of money they began with, and they both knew how to manage a caravan, run a plantation, build and maintain fourteen kinds of sea-going and river-going vessels, raise horses big and small, and fowl, dogs, and seagulls, recite the entire annals of six cultures from memory, speak and write nineteen languages, prepare medicine for all sorts of ailments, worries, and anxieties, make flesh powder, lufuego du ladron, and picoro de fuegos artificiales, make glass, ceramics, and lenses from almost any quality sand, and many, many other means of making money. In the seventh year of the quest, a dreadful storm destroyed their growing caravan of found things, and they lost almost everything. She clutched vainly at things as they flew and spun in the downpour of wind and water, and the butcher's boy fought to keep the storm from taking her away as well. It was the last time that Maria Isabella allowed herself to cry. The butcher's boy took her hand, and they began all over again. They were beset by thieves and learned to run, out of houses and caves and temples, on roads and on sea lanes and in gullies, on horses, aguilas, and waves. They encountered scoundrels and sinveguenza, and learned to bargain, at first with various coins, jewels, and medals, and later with promises, threats, and dreams. They were beleaguered by nameless things in nameless places, and learned to defend themselves, first with wooden pesual, then later with Chris, Giavalato, and Lamina. In their thirtieth year together, they took stock of what they had, referred to the thousands of items still left unmarked on their list, exchanged a long, silent look, filled with immeasurable meaning, 
and went on searching for the components of the impossible kite. Acquiring the dowel by planting a lanka seed at the foot of the grove of a kindly duata, and waiting the seven years it took to grow, unable to leave. Winning the lower spreader in a drinking match against the three eldest brothers of Duma Alon. Assembling the pieces of the lower edge connector while fleeing a war party of the Sumalik. Solving the riddles of the toothless crone, I Aisin, to find what would be part of a wingtip. Climbing a among to spend seventy sleepless nights to get the components of the ferule. Crafting an artificial wave to fool the Serena into surrendering their locks of hair that would form a portion of the tether, rearing miniature horses to trade to the duende for parts of the bridle, and finally spending eighteen years painstakingly collecting the fifteen thousand different strands of thread that would make up the Aquilone's surface fabric. When at last they returned to Ciudad Mayora, both stooped and older, they paused briefly at the gates of the Portun de Transgresiones. The butcher's boy looked at Maria Isabella and said, Well, here we are at last. She nodded, raising a weary arm to her forehead and making the sign of homecoming. Do you feel like you've wasted your life? she asked him, as the caravan bearing everything they had amassed lumbered into the city. Nothing is ever wasted, the butcher's boy told her. They made their way to the house of Melkor Antivares and knocked on his door. A young man answered them and sadly informed them that the wizened artisan had died many, many years ago, and that he, Raul Antivares, was the new maestro de cosas ingravidas. Yes, yes, but do you still make kites? Maria Isabella asked him. Kites? Of course. From time to time, someone wants an aquilon or... Before Ser Antibades, Melkor Antibades died, did he leave instructions for a very special kind of kite? She interrupted. Well, mumbled Raul Antibades, my great-grandfather did leave a design for a woman named Maria Isabella do Cielo, but I am she. She ignored his shocked face. Listen, young man, I have spent all my life gathering everything Melkor Antivares said he needed to build my kite. Everything is outside. Build it. And so Raul Antivares unearthed the yellowing parchment that contained the design of the impossible kite that Melkor Antivares had dreamed into existence, referenced the parts from the list of things handed to him by the butcher's boy, and proceeded to build the aqualon. When it was finished, it looked nothing at all like either Maria Isabella or the butcher's boy had imagined. The kite was huge and looked like a star, but those who saw it could not agree on how best to describe the marvelous conveyance. After he helped strap her in, the butcher's boy stood back and looked at the woman he had grown old with. This is certainly no time for tears. Maria Isabella reprimanded him gently as she gestured for him to release the kite. No, there is time for everything, the butcher's boy whispered to himself as he pushed and pulled at the ropes and strings, pulley and levers and gears of the impossible contrivance. Goodbye, goodbye, 
she shouted down to him as the star kite began its rapid ascent to the speckled firmament above. Goodbye, goodbye, he whispered, as his heart finally broke into a thousand mismatched pieces, each one small, hard, and sharp. The tears of the butcher's boy, who had long since ceased to be a boy, flowed freely down his face as he watched her rise. The extraordinary old woman he had always loved, strapped to the frame of an impossible kite. As she rose, he sighed and reflected on the absurdity of life, the heaviness of loss, the cruelty of hope, the truth about quests, and the relentless nature of a love that knew only one direction. His hands swiftly played out the tether, that part of the marvelous rope they had bargained for with two riddles, a blind rooster, and a handful of cold and lusterless diamante, in a bazaar held only once every seven years on an island in the Degat Palaras Takidas. And he realized that all those years they were together, she had never known his name. As she rose above the city of her birth, Maria Isabella took a moment to gasp at the immensity of the city that sprawled beneath her, recalling how everything had begun, fought the trembling of her withered hands, and with a fishbone knife, that sad and strange knife which had been passed from hand to hand, from women consumed by unearthly passion, that same knife which had been part of her reward for solving the mystery of the Raja Sumibon's lost turtle shell, in the southern lands of Dia Aldin, cut the glimmering tether. Up, 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 higher and higher and higher she rose. She saw the winding silver ribbon of the Pasigla, the fluted roofs of Luecala du Acana Menor y Mayor, the trellises and gardens of the Plaza Imperial, and the dim streets of the Mercado de Coristas. And Maria Isabella looked down, and thought she saw everything, everything. At one exquisite interval during her ascent, Maria Isabella thought she spied the precise tower where Lorenzo de Vicenzio e Salvadore, the stargazer, must live and work. She felt the exuberant joy of her lost youth bubble up within her and mix with the fiery spark of love she had kept alive for sixty years. And in a glorious blaze of irrepressible happiness, she waved her free hand with wild abandon, shouting the name that had been forever etched into her heart. When a powerful wind took the kite to sudden new heights, when Ciudad Mayora and everything below her vanished in the dark, she stopped shouting and began to laugh and laugh and laugh. And Maria Isabella do Cielo looked up at the beginning of forever and thought of nothing, nothing at all. And in the city below, in one of the high rooms of the silent Torre dos Rumos, where those who had served with distinction were housed and honored, an old man, long retired and plagued by cataracts, sighed in his sleep and dreamed a dream of unnamed stars. Such a touching story. 
Dean's take on star-crossed lovers, if you'll forgive the pun, is a wonderful blend of magical realism and mythic elements. Sometimes the grand romantic gesture is its own reward. Our second story for the week is The Wood of Ephraim by Edward M. Erdelak. Edward is the author of eight novels, including the acclaimed Judeo-centric Lovecraftian weird western series Merkabah Rider and Andersonville from Random House. His fiction has appeared in dozens of anthologies and periodicals, including most recently the Stoker Award-winning After Death, Atomic Age Cthulhu, Edge of Sundown, and Star Wars Insider magazine. Born in Indiana, educated in Chicago, he lives in the Los Angeles area with his wife and a bodified slew of kids. The story is narrated by Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor, and podcaster that can be heard as co-host of the Dune Steef audio fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. The music featured in the story is Past the Edge by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. And now, The Wood of Ephraim by Edward M. Erdelak. The Wood of Ephraim by Edward M. Erdelak. Second Samuel. 18. 8. For the battle was there spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The Judean soldiers had run all day previously from Mahanaim, plunging into the wooded hill country of Gilead, where they surprised the massing forces of the rebel prince Absalom. The fighting was bitter and terrible. The outnumbered Judean loyalists of King David drove into the heart of the wayward Israelite tribes, beguiled by the king's son, into open revolt. All day they fought a confused, bloody skirmish. By nightfall, Absalom's forces broke and scattered across the countryside. Just what had brought about their overwhelming victory was a matter of excited debate between the ten Geborim. David's elite warriors who had spearheaded the attack behind General Joab. They talked around the fire as they broke their evening bread, stuffing their bellies with old Barzillai's kind cheese, there being no game to be found. "'We've the craftiness of the king to thank for this victory,' Zalman the Ahoite mumbled as he chewed. "'Had he not secretly sent his man Hushai into Absalom's council?' The old wizard Ahithophel would surely have advised the prince to run us down as we fled Jerusalem. Be careful when you mention Ahithophel, idiot, hissed Elez the Paltite, who looked up just then from rubbing balm into a cut on his forearm. You know the wizard's son Eliam fought for us today. I hear Ahithophel went home and hung himself, because he knew what David would do to him when Absalom failed. "'What you don't see with your eyes, don't say with your mouth,' Zalman admonished, waving Elez off. "'Anyway, Eliam is loyal to David. He can't help his father was a sorcerer or a traitor.' 
It was General Joab's might that swung the day for us. Nahari of Biroth gasped, having just taken his lips from a bulging wineskin. I was at the siege of Kinsali, when the army was threatening to desert, and Joab ordered himself slung over the wall. Ten days later, blood flowed under the city gate, and Joab threw it open. The Amalekites thought Asmodeus was loose in their streets. I've heard that story, said Zalman, shaking his head. No story, Naharai insisted. I was there. He raised the skin above his head. To Joab, a hero great enough to knock the rebels back across Jordan. Several raised their cups toward the general's dark pavilion and roared their assent. Garib the Ithrite added, And to we Giborum, who played no small part? To the Lord of Hosts, said young Obed the Archer solemnly. The, the Lord, Lord of, of hosts. hosts, they all agreed. A figure stepped into the firelight. He was grim-garbed and odd-eyed, with a wild, white-flecked beard and a dented helm, testifying to the work he'd done that day. It was Iliam Bar at Hithofel himself, the son of Prince Absalom's old wizard. Zalman shot a hard look at Elez, who shrugged as if to say, As I told you. What if, said Eliam, in the awkward silence, it was none of those things. What do you mean? asked Naharai. Eliam stared into the fire. Did any of you... See anything strange during the battle? I saw an Israelite cleaved with an axe from his beard to his balls, said one called Hidai, laughing. That's not what I meant, said Eliam, his dark eyes lifting from the fire to look over their heads. Where are the stars tonight? Naharai and the other Giborim craned their necks to peer with mild interest at the night sky through the camp smoke. It was a black hole, lined with the bare branches of the trees that ringed the clearing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
What are you talking about? It is very dark, said Eliam, after a moment. Dark as the Olam Hatohu, the waters of chaos that preceded the first day. As you say, said Naharai, smirking. My father told me once that in Noah's age men heard the whispers of the old ones in their dreams and moved the great Evan Hashatia, the foundation stone with which the Lord had stoppered them up. The waters of chaos burst forth and flooded the earth, and many things that knew nothing of man were loosed. The old ones? Obed asked. Those that swam in the darkness before the light. Blasphemy? warned Josephat the Mishnite. Yes, said Eliam quietly, turning from the fire. But let us keep the fire burning. I'll take first watch. He went off to gather fuel. The men looked to each other. Zalman shrugged. Wizard son, he whispered, rolling his eyes. One by one they sank to their bedrolls, exhausted. Zalman, Naharai asked. Zalman stirred, nearly asleep already. Where are the stars tonight? Zalman sleepily opened his eyes. It's overcast, he mumbled tiredly. Quit gabbling, you hens, hissed Hezro the Carmelite. In the morning we hunt Absalom. Naharai lay his ear to the earth, and watched the shadow of Eliam at the edge of the camp, looking towards the woods, and murmuring as if in prayer, in words he could not hear. Morning came with the clink of iron and the rustle of canvas, as Naharai and Zalman pulled down the general's tent. There was a faint, rank smell in the air. But for the rising of their fellows, none would have known the day. The sun was far above a cover of murky cloud, which hung heavy and low over all. The woods were filled with white mist. No bird sang. Naharai noticed Eliam standing aloof and staring off into the woods. Perhaps he expected the routed Israelites to break from the cover of the mist and attack. General Joab paced anxiously, tugging his black beard. He wore his dark blue cloak, his polished bronze helm, and his bright corselet, one powerful hand on the hilt of his sickle sword. The general is eager to join the hunt, Naharai observed. He's going to kill Prince Absalom, Zalman muttered. David ordered his son spared, Naharai reminded him. The king has commanded Joab not to kill before, Zalman shrugged. But he is a vengeful man. Remember Abner? Abner slew his brother, Naharai exclaimed. Joab loves and reveres David more than any man. He stayed our hands at Kinsali until the king arrived, although the victory was his alone, just so the city would bear David's name and not his. Didn't Prince Absalom once burn Joab's field because he was tardy in answering his summons? You think he's forgotten that? They had finished folding the tent, and now stood within a hand's breadth of each other. David is the Lord's king. Joab is David's general. 
To speak against Joab is to speak against the Lord, said Naharai. Your reasoning, such as it is, is clear, brother. Good, said Naharai, crouching down to half the tent. But I wonder sometimes if the prophet Samuel was right, Zalman mused. Perhaps we Hebrews have no need of kings. Remember what he said. This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. Naharai shoved the bundled tent into Salman's arms. Put your ass to work and tie this, he said. Just then young Obed came running into camp. He had been sent out before dawn to scour the wilderness for sign of the fugitive prince. He ran straight to General Joab, and had to be given water because he could not summon his voice between sucking breaths. "'Speak! What news?' Joab demanded when water had flushed the redness from Obed's beardless face, and he straightened again. By now all the Giborim were gathered around. "'My lord, I saw Prince Absalom!' Obed gasped, as if the news might have killed him had he held it longer." He hangs in a tree, not half a parasa from here. The archer was red-eyed and trembling, every muscle in his body taut as drawn bowstrings. What? Joab said sharply, pulling Obed to his feet by his sheepskins. Dead? Obed shook his head. I, I don't know, my lord. Explain yourself. I found an empty camp, and heard the step of a mule on the road. Prince Absalom was mounted on it, we saw each other at the same time. He kicked the mule and went off down the road. But then... Then, Joab pressed, pulling Obed closer, as if lessening the distance for the words to travel would bring the news sooner. My lord, I think his hair must have caught in the low branch of an oak. The mule went off without him. You didn't kill him, he said to Obed. No, lord. Joab smirked and released the young archer. "'He was alone?' asked Hezro. "'No escort?' "'I saw no one,' said Obed. "'The king's orders are clear, then,' Zalman said, leaning on his spear. General Joab's eyes met his. "'We are to bring him alive to David.' The general whirled away from Obed and stalked across the camp to his waiting chariot. As they fell in marching order— Eliam went to Obed's side. The boy still shook. It seemed to Naharai more than exhaustion. Hadn't he said the prince was less than half a parasa down the road? Why would a youth like Obed be wasted by so short a sprint? Obed, said Eliam, laying a hand on the boy's shoulder. Is that all you saw? Obed would not look Eliam in the face. Yes, he stammered, standing up to march with the others. He swayed, and Naharai reached out and caught him. "'What's wrong?' Naharai asked, looking to both Obed and Eliam for an answer. Obed only shook his head. General Joab's chariot rumbled onto the road. Zalman grabbed Naharai by the elbow. "'Let's go, brother!' The Giborim ran through the dust of the general's chariot. The mist grew so thick that the world seemed half-made, 
a shadowy, angled place of oblong, grasping trees that sprouted from nothingness. The ground at their feet came into existence only to support them, then fell away behind them into a dreamy material soon forgotten. The smell of slow, rotting vegetation was stronger. "'What is this place?' Naharai asked. "'The wood of Ephraim,' answered Eliam. They began to see signs of the rebels' flight. Weapons, armor, even torn clothing lay discarded in the road, as if the traitors had cast off all evidence of their infidelity. They came across a man's foot lying in the road, still in its sandal. The end was ragged and bloody, as if torn, not cut from the ankle. "'An amputation?' Naharai wondered. "'If it is, the Israelites have no surgeons among them,' said Zalman. "'Lions?' "'There are no flies,' Elez observed. "'Yet the blood is dry.' "'Keep moving,' urged Hezro. "'Do any of you remember the flood earlier in David's reign?' Eliam asked, watching the trees closely as they left the grisly thing behind. "'I remember it,' said Naharai. "'It was when the foundation for the temple was dug. "'All the valley flooded for a month.' "'All but these hills of Gilead,' Eliam confirmed. "'Save your wind for the run,' Hezro called. "'A little further on, they heard the clacking of branches and a man blubbering. "'The horses of the general's chariot began to buck and fight. "'Jerebi the driver halted them.' allowing the giborum behind to catch up. Among the many sharp and jagged shadows, one towered before them to the left of the road, a great bare-limbed oak with weirdly pale bark and a host of wild branches that fanned out into the air in complex patterns, so far-reaching that the tapered boughs disappeared in the mist. In one thick bough that spread in an erratic arch across the left half of the road, a man dangled and fought like a fly in a wooden web. Joab stepped from the chariot, spear in hand. Naharai pressed forward with Zalman. The others parted around the mad-eyed horses hopping in their harness. At their approach, the aspect of the hanging man grew clear. The ostentatious purple cloak, better suited to the court than the battlefield, the handsome mail, the golden spangles adorning the thin, struggling arms— the rich, jewel-studded sandals ten feet off the ground. Prince Absalom's grimacing face was partly obscured in the tangle of branches, and his own famously long and lustrous hair was drawn tightly across his eyes, likely a result of his own efforts to extricate himself. They came to stand immediately below him in the road. Some of them smiled to see the unfortunate traitor so lucklessly suspended by the chief object of his own vanity— Joab laughed aloud. "'It seems your pretty locks have caught you up, O Prince,' he remarked. "'Shall we pluck this fruit down for you, General?' roared Ira ben Ikish. "'Let it ripen!' shouted Hezro. "'Yes,' laughed Garib. "'It's yet too bitter for the General's plate.' "'Perhaps we should leave it here to rot,' Ellis suggested, in all seriousness or divide it amongst us. The laughter died down at that. All eyes went to Joab. Naharai frowned. No, said Joab. 
We will cut him down. He looked back at Zalman. The king's orders are clear. Yes, master, said Zalman, nodding his approval and glancing at Naharai, who smiled broadly, vindicated. Joab looked up at the prince, kicking and whimpering in the branches. Don't worry about sparing his lovely hair, men, said Joab. He left me once with a bare field because I didn't come quickly enough when he called. Now we'll leave him stubble-headed because he didn't come running when his father bade him. Zalman and two other men moved off the road, intending to scale the tree and hack through bough or hair. Then Jerabai, the charioteer, called out from behind, Wait! The three Giborim stopped and looked back. Naharai felt a chill then, as something wet splashed his bare arm. He looked down to see a perfectly round spot of blood, followed quickly by another. Look to his face! Jerabai urged, pointing up at Absalom, his eyes bugging. The men on the road moved around to Jerabai's vantage to get a better look. Naharai backed away, smearing the blood down his arm. They saw that the spindly fingers of the tree branch were hooked into the corners of Absalom's clenched mouth, which oozed blood. For a moment, Naharai wondered why Absalom suffered the intrusion, as a simple movement of his jaw could have easily dislodged the offending branches. But then he saw. They all saw. The tendons in his neck, the muscles in his jaw, were bunched in an effort to keep his teeth shut against the pull of some unknown force. There were ragged cuts in his lips. His breaths came out in terrified white puffs in the cold air. Before their eyes, his jaw wrenched open with a pop, and he screamed. Then, with a hiss, something snaked its way rapidly up the branch, faster than any serpent, snapping twigs and shedding a few brown crackling leaves in its haste. White, shiny tubers circled up the base of every branch, converging on Absalom. They flowed down his throat, filling his gaping mouth with thick wood stuff, choking off his screaming. The whole tree shuddered as if in ecstasy. A wet sucking sound came down to them. The slick tubers in his mouth quivered. The men staggered back at the perverse spectacle of the blindfolded prince dancing jerkily in the tree limbs. Something dark that was not blood filled the tubers spilling from his mouth, which were translucent enough to see the course it took back to the trunk of the great tree. "'Lord!' Naharai exclaimed. "'What is it?' Eliam looked about to answer when Joab commanded, "'Save the prince!' Zalman and the two other warriors at the edge of the road drew their swords and axes and hesitated, unsure whether to pursue their earlier course and climb the tree to reach Absalom, or hew it down instead. "'General!' It was Eliam, now at Joab's shoulder. "'It's too late!' Joab opened his mouth to protest, but then saw the weird wet stalks thrusting themselves further down Absalom's throat, so far his neck bulged hideously outward beneath his chin. He flipped the spear in his hand, drawing it back over his shoulder. No! Nahara interrupted, pushing forward and grabbing Joab's arm. Remember the king's edict! By now word had reached King David that the battle had ended in victory and that his son had fled. If Absalom were killed... No one would believe Joab had not murdered him. But the general was a bull, 
and the strongest of them. With a mere shrug, Naharai clattered to the road. Joab regained himself and cast the spear. It transfixed Prince Absalom through the chest, a killing blow. Yet still the prince thrashed and fought, his teeth ground loudly against the tubers, finally cracking off in his mouth under the strain. "'Spear!' Joab cried. Jerabai took hold of one of the general's spears and tossed it to Joab. Joab ran Prince Absalom through a second time. The body lurched and sagged in the grip of the tree, blood spurting down the haft. The flow of stuff from the corpse ceased. There was a sound, like a cross between the groan of falling timber and a hysterical chittering. Then, before their eyes, the branches entwined about the dead prince's head moved. The tubers retracted from the mouth as swiftly as they'd entered. The barbed, blood-dipped ends emerged thrashing, whip-like, as if in outrage at having had their repast swept prematurely from the table. The branches over the road curled impossibly, and heaved the corpse about by its head, battering four of the giborim aside. They fell, sprawling. Joab, Naharai, and Eliam ducked the grisly bludgeon, drawing their weapons. As the largest branch completed its swing, it released Absalom's body. The cadaver turned limply in the air and crashed through the trees, vanishing in the brush and mist. Then the limb returned in a great backswing, surprising Elhanan, who had rushed to help his fallen fellows, sweeping his legs out from under him. Jerabai the charioteer screamed as the bow made for him. The ends splayed like skeletal fingers and wrapped about his torso. It lifted him into the air and met with a second large branch which entangled his legs. Then the two thick limbs sprung apart, as if they had been bent and fastened together as a snare. The charioteer was torn in two halves, his legs going one way and his head and shoulders the other, leaving the rest to spill down on the confused men in a shower of blood and bouncing organs. Zalman, Elez, and Hezro began to yell. Naharai ran toward his friends and saw that the tubers had turned on them. The three men were hopelessly bound in the mass of tangled rootwork. Naharai saw the barbed ends sliding around their necks and creeping up their faces, rearing to plunge into their mouths like striking serpents. Naharai followed the twisting roots back to the thick trunk, which was cleft in the middle where the tubers disappeared. There was a strong, rancid smell here, the same stench they had detected all morning, overwhelming here at its source. The white mist that encircled them billowed out of the open trunk like smoke. He hacked at the tendrils with his sword, but they were tough and coated with a viscous sap. It was like trying to cut a wet hay bale in half with a dull knife. Garib and General Joab joined him. Every blow they struck against the tubers caused the tree to shudder. Above their heads the great limbs swayed violently as if buffeted by a storm. One heavy branch came down like an axe and struck Garib on top of the head with such force Naharai heard the disquieting sound of the man's bones crunching together and was splashed on the cheek by a jet of blood from his ear. He narrowly avoided becoming the tree's next victim when the general pulled him away toward the road. "'Obed!' the general shouted as he dragged Naharai past Zalman and the two other trapped warriors. Zalman's eyes watched him pleadingly, half his face torn away by the branches, the tubers packing his bleeding mouth. As Naharai and Joab regained the road, Obed rushed out of the mist to meet them. "'Fire arrows!' Joab yelled, shoving him back with one hand to the opposite side of the road, nearly out of the tree's reach. 
Obed nodded and hastily turned to break open a wax-sealed jar from his pack with his knife. Naharai pulled away from the general, but felt himself jerked back again by his breastplate. "'Zalman!' Naharai cried. "'Avenge him!' said Joab, releasing him only when Naharai ceased struggling. "'Rally!' he shouted at the others. The four men who had been knocked to the ground came running at the sound of their commander's voice, raising their rounded shields and staggering against the blows the tree directed down on them. Ira ben Ikesh was slammed down on his belly by a great bow, which battered him again and again until his broken body was driven partially into the dirt. Elhanan, Josaphat, Hidai, and Naharai put their backs to Joab, raising their shields and hacking at the questing ramage with their swords and axes, batting them away with their spears. Obed plunged a fistful of arrowheads into the open jar. Joab dug in his own pack and came out with flint. He tore a scrap from his cloak and began to strike the flint against the blade of his sword. The tree whirled and struck at them, the branches hissing like knives through the air, but unable to mount a viable attack. Only the spindly ends found their mark. These raked ineffectually at the bronze shields, or were quickly cut away. Then there was a tremendous crackling noise. The entire tree canted abruptly. Another great shearing noise, and the lower portion rose to meet the first. The tree was uprooting itself. It began to inch towards them, tilting as it clambered slowly up onto the road, its muddy roots slithering beneath it, carrying it like the legs of a ponderous millipede. Joab's curses became more desperate, as each clink of flint yielded nothing. "'Master, let us flee!' Elhanan whined. But his protest was barely heard in the wordless yell of triumph that burst from the general's lips as the bit of his cloak flared into fire, and they smelled the smoke and felt the flare of heat behind them. Joab held the flaming cloth out to Obed, who fitted an arrow to his bow. Joab touched the fire to the dripping arrowhead and shouted for them to get down. Obediently, they crouched. The first of Obed's flaming missiles hissed across the road and struck the trunk of the advancing tree with a hollow sound punctuated by a terrible groan. The tree wavered in the road and began to retreat, slow as a snail. It almost made Naharai laugh to see, especially when Joab ordered them to pursue. They crept behind the thing, just out of its reach. Obed fired arrow after arrow till it was lit up and streaming fire, bellowing its distress with an unnatural beastly babble. Black smoke joined the white mist issuing from the thing, and a noisome stink of burning rot filled the air. By the time the Giborim had reached the other side of the road, the thing was blazing about twenty paces out into the forest. It shambled and staggered to get away, howling and jiggling, pushing over lesser timbers in its plodding retreat. "'Shall we give chase, sir?' Naharai asked eagerly. "'Yes, by God!' Joab exclaimed, his blood up. "'Wait, General!' It was the voice of Eliam, behind them. He alone crouched in the road, rummaging in his pack. "'Listen! Look!' It was something of a struggle to turn their attention away from the stumbling, burning monster, but Naharai's blood iced when he did. The trees. All around them, the trees were moving in the mist, though there was no wind. The forest sounded like every timber was falling, every trunk creaking and rubbing against each other. The whole wood of Ephraim was moving towards them, pale, 
swaying limbs and slithering roots already encroaching upon either side of the road. God, what do we do? Elhanan gibbered. Obed, out of arrows, knelt in the road and began to pray. Here, Eliam beckoned from the road. Seeing no other course, Joab led the way, pulling Obed to his feet. Soon they were surrounding the wizard's son. My father warned me about Ephraim, Eliam said rapidly, drawing something from his pack and holding it out to them. He gave me this, said if I ever found myself here, it would protect me. Maybe it will keep them back. In his hand was a smooth greenish stone, almost the size of the general's fist, a faint star-shaped design etched whitely upon it, a flaming eye in the center of a pentagram, with a smaller figure within, like a stylized branch. "'Philistine devilry!' Josephat declared, spitting into the dirt. "'What is it?' Joab asked warily. "'My father told me it was a piece of the foundation stone, and that the sign was the Lord's own.' "'Don't listen to this one!' Josephat protested. "'His father was a damned wizard. Everyone knows—' "'What choice do we have?' Joab thundered. "'Get in front of us, Eliam. We'll go back the way we came. Shields!' Be firm, and may God defend us. Shoulder to shoulder they encircled Eliam in their round shields like the palisades of a forest. He held the stone before him and over his head, and began to drone a low, strange incantation, in a tongue none of them knew. They advanced, huddled close together. After a few steps Elhanan whimpered and dropped his shield. He ran, gibbering, straight into the woods like a fire-maddened deer. Obed lunged to catch him, but Joab pulled him back and ordered the gap closed. They heard Elhanan shriek wildly somewhere off in the mists, and then there came a terrible sucking and snapping sound. After that, only Joab dared to look. He urged them on with news that the trees were holding. Eliam's arm began to tire, like Moses stretching his staff over the battle of Rephidim. Naharai and Hidai reached up to steady his wavering arm. Obed prayed in a loud voice the whole time, as if to counteract Eliam's bizarre incantations. Naharai glanced once past the rim of his shield and saw a pair of the monstrous trees rocking at the edge of the road, the tendrils waving slowly, like hair under water. The smoking, gaping vertical clefts in their trunks yawned like hungry mouths, slavering sap as they passed. Their branches were strung with garlands of corpses, rebel Israelites who had fled into the woods from the previous day's battle. All of them were shriveled, desiccated, bone-thin and skeletal, every jaw cruelly broken, opening and closing in mute entreaty, the teeth clacking together like macabre wind chimes as they pendulated in the lurching trees. Naharai did not raise his head again until Joab announced they were safely out of the forest. No one mentioned the shocking whiteness of the general's beard. Behind them, the forest menaced, swaddled in stinking mists. The crackling of timber could still be heard, faintly, as if a herd of great beasts were negotiating the dense woods. "'What are they, Eliam?' Joab asked. "'I only know what my father told me,' Eliam said, hunkering down breathlessly and removing his helmet to run a shaky hand through his dripping hair. "'He said—' that David heard an old one's call, and thought it was the Lord. He broke the temple ground and moved the foundation stone. My father replaced it, 
but not before an old one and her dark young, were freed. They must have come into these hills as the waters receded. He told me that as trees inhale the exhalations of man and renew the air, those things draw the life of men and spew death, a kind of chaos that unmakes everything around them. That's why no flies or birds, no game of any kind, whispered Hadai, and why the temple was never finished, Obed added lamely. We must tell David, Naharai said. Joab put his fist to his mouth, staring back at the wood. When his hand came away, he said, No, when we rejoin the armies of Abissahi and Etai, I will order these woods burned. No one will speak of this to the king. But what of Absalom? Naharai asked. He will think you murdered his son. Will he believe this wild story? said Joab. We will all vouch for it, General, Obed said. The other men voiced their agreement, but Joab waved them quiet. You would all be named accomplices to my crime, Joab said tiredly and lose the king's trust. As my father did, Eliam said quietly, We will rejoin the army, and burn the wood of Ephraim, said Joab. I alone will take the blame for Absalom. Now let's be gone from these cursed hills. With that, he turned and marched off down the road, his cloak torn, covered in blood like a common soldier. Naharai was the first to follow, with tears in his eyes. That night, the horn of General Joab sounded. The Judahite armies broke their vessels and fired their arrows, sowing the hills of Gilead with seeds of flame. The wood of Ephraim blazed through the night. A great groaning was heard. The smoke that poured down into the valley was putrid the snow ash black. Just before dawn, the smoke cleared, and the stars shone briefly in the deep blue sky. Author's Note I had a picture Bible growing up as a kid, and among the various ingenious modes of suffering depicted in the Bible, one of the most indelible for me was the image of David's son, Prince Absalom, with his hair tangled in the branch of a tree, hanging there in the road as the vengeful Joab advanced on him with a spear. I had a terrible fear of eye injuries as a kid, having heard some story from my grandfather of a kid who fell into a bush and had his eyeball pierced by a branch. And that image of Absalom, with his face entirely obscured by jagged branches, freaked me out. It filled me with a million questions, too. Did it hurt his neck hanging there like that? Did the branches slash his flesh? I was more horrified by that entanglement than what Joab's spear did to him moments later. Years later, I read a King Conan comic book in which Conan and a thief head out against a rival party of thieves to locate this treasure. Part of the ritual of finding it meant burning a pile of seed cones, the fumes of which caused the trees around them to animate and attack them. The image of men with swords battling Wizard of Oz-type trees definitely inspired this story.
Thank you, Edward, for that chilling blend of dark fantasy and Lovecraftian horror in a setting not often associated with either. And for all of you out there, please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. And please note that we also follow the Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means we're not selling you these stories. We rely on your donations. Did you know, of the thousands of downloads we get every week, we have two people donating? If you'd like to share your thoughts on this, or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. I do like answering comments. My answers are always interesting. Until next week, bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.